Hey, this is Pastor Devin. Thanks so much for joining us. I pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. Now, so I just want to make sure that before we dive in, we got the guys from Riverbend. They just celebrated Christmas, but they're part of our family, and we just want to make sure we know that they we love them. and just honor that we get to be a part of this in your life. I hope uh, you've enjoyed some time with friends and family. I hope you've enjoyed some good meals together. How many have enjoyed some good meals over the last few days? How many have eaten way too much? And uh, that's why January 1st <laughs> is coming tomorrow. I got just a little bit of a ring up here if you can take that. Thank you. When we, um, when we eat meals together, what we're doing, um, whether we realize it or not, is making friends. We're either building existing friendships or we're making ones uh, that weren't existing. We're making them new ones to our life. In some instances, we're deciding that we don't want to be friends as we share meals with people. It all happens over meals. For the most part, one of two things happen over meals. You either enjoy existing friends or you're welcoming people to become new friends. We look at the Bible, there are a lot of meals, feasts, festivals, celebrations. Jesus' first miracle takes place over a meal at a wedding. Over and over again, you see the significance of meals in the Bible. I mean, think about it. Sin entered the world over a meal. I mean, in the very beginning, a choice was made to enjoy food and not invite God to the dinner. Sin was a result of Eve responding to share a meal with the devil. And in choosing to eat the fruit, there was a denial of God and an acceptance to an invitation from the devil. A meal is eaten without God and a friendship is formed against him. Because it's not just about eating a meal, it's about picking a friend. What Adam and Eve we're doing, they were saying, we're, we're choosing not to be friends with God. and We're choosing to be friends with Satan. We choose to disobey God and obey the enemy. We're pushing God out and we're inviting Satan in all over a meal. We don't just eat meals, actually. We worship. I've seen some of you eat. It's a worshiping experience. <laughs> When we eat a meal, we're not just choosing food. We're picking a relationship. That's why when we as Christians pray before a meal, we simply pause and thank God. We're not only thanking him, though, for the food that we're getting to partake in, but we're inviting him to be present in the meal. We're welcoming him to be a part of the meal. And in Genesis, food is eaten without God, and a friendship is formed in rebellion against God all over a meal. Meals are kind of a big deal. And this begins the significance of meals in the Bible all the way to the very end when you have the meal in Revelation. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate celebration. Meals are a big deal. Okay. Shelf that thought for just a moment. Let me talk theology with you for just a second. I know you're not in school, kids, but just keep your brain on for just about five minutes with me. God is transcendent, meaning that 
He sits outside of his creation. Now, he is involved, he is with, he is imminent with his creation, but he is also transcendent. Now, only God can do that. It's pretty spectacular when you think about it, that God is greater than the sum of everything that he's created. He's made the universe, which is why it will take you an eternity to even scratch the surface on figuring him out. Because he's greater than everything he's ever made. He is greater than the sum total of everything that he's created. He's a great king. At the core of his transcendence is his holiness. That is his uniqueness. Everything about him is distinct from anything or anyone. The problem occurs when sin enters the picture. When Adam and Eve decided to share a meal with the enemy and rebel against God, it creates a blockage between the transcendent holy God and now sinful fallen man. Because one of the things about God being holy is that he is righteous. His righteousness keeps him from being able to coexist or mingle with sin. He is separated from it. God's transcendent righteousness could not coexist or interact with fallen man. So God creates a sacrificial system where sinful man could still be in contact with him. And the goal of the sacrificial system was to create a substitute. Because sin had to be addressed, but God loved man so much, he comes up with a way to address it with a substitutionary sacrificial system. Are you still following me? Stay with me here. In this system, you could offer an animal on behalf of yourself or on behalf of a group of people. And the death of the animal would serve as a temporary solution to the blockage between transcendent, righteous, holy God and sinful, fallen man. Now, the reason that that sacrificial system is important is because it frees God up to now fulfill his covenant to be the provision for his people. Covenants are designed to bring blessing. So a covenant is an arrangement through which God flows to bring you what he has planned for you. That's a covenant. Now, everybody wants to be blessed. Here's the problem. Not everybody wants to be under the covenant. And to get the blessing, you've got to be under the covenant. Deuteronomy 29, look at our first verse for the day. Verse 9 says this, carefully follow the terms of the covenant because it's in keeping the terms of the covenant that you experience the blessing. So you need to be remain under the covenant in order to experience the blessing. God made a covenant, an arrangement, an agreement with Israel, and it was a covenant of blessing. But God couldn't fulfill that covenant unless he dealt with the problem of sin. And God sets up this sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But here's the thing you need to know. It was a temporary payment. Payment for sin had to happen over and over and over again. So the people keep going through this routine because of God's unique relationship with them through the crafting of this substitutionary system. But the system made way for and allowed for God to do for the people what he had planned to do. And as a part of that system, 
Seven feasts are instituted. They all have spiritual significance. I won't go into all of that. And the seven feasts all revolve around, you guessed it, a meal. Passover is one of those feasts. Passover was a result of and a part of this substitutionary system. The Passover celebration, if you don't know, was a result of God delivering the children of Israel from the death angel who had passed over the homes of those that had placed the blood of a pure, spotless lamb on the door frames of their homes. If you don't know that story, go home and read it, Exodus chapter 12. And he delivers them from the rule of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, the Passover also serves as a reminder that there is no atonement for sin apart from the shedding of blood. And it's at that point, from that point on, every year, that God's people would celebrate the feast of Passover and they would celebrate with a meal. It all culminates in a meal, a feast. Every year, God would say, don't forget how I saved you, rescued you, and delivered you. And they would celebrate with a meal. Okay, now we flip to the New Testament, okay? The division in the Bible is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or we could say it this way. It's divided by an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The Bible, listen, the Bible is divided by covenants. And covenants, again, are arrangements through which God wants to bring you blessing that he has planned for you, but you have to remain under the covenant to get it. God has an arrangement with the Old Testament. The Old Covenant has an arrangement in the New Testament, which is the New Covenant. And what you have to do is apply Old Testament principle to New Testament theology and teaching. So here's the deal. Both covenants have a table. The Old Testament, the table was the actual altar where they would sacrifice the animals. So today we're going to take the Old Testament principle and take a trip to the New Testament table. Are you ready to take a trip to the New Testament table, everyone? Okay. Which is what we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, depending upon which background you come from, determines kind of what you called it. And similar to the children of Israel, when we take communion, we celebrate the fact that we were once enslaved to sin. Your sin was like a Pharaoh that ruled over you. And although we deserve to die, God makes a provision, a substitute. And through the blood of a clean, spotless lamb, the lamb of God, we are saved and rescued and delivered. And God's wrath passes over us because we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. That's good news, by the way, everyone. So look, look at what John says when he sees Jesus walking on the scene. He says this in John chapter 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, new covenant, who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus is the true Passover. He's the ultimate substitute. From the very beginning of Jesus' arrival, it's, it's about faith in him so that the wrath of God can pass over us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes it, For Christ is our Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. All the way to the very end of history, the culmination, what happens? God's people gather around the throne, every tribe, every tongue, and what do they declare? Revelation chapter 5, they declare worthy is the 
lambs who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So Jesus is now on the scene. He lives a sinless life. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons. And then it comes time for the Passover feast and he goes to sit down and enjoy a meal with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And they sit down to partake of this meal. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 now. And while they were eating, this was over a meal, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. The blood of the, here's this word, of the covenant, which is poured out for the many of the forgiveness of their sin. The disciples had to be sitting there thinking, who says this? I mean, you see, what most of us fail to see or feel or hear in this text is the deconstructing of over a thousand Passover feasts. 1,446 of them, to be exact. Passover meals that have been celebrated up to this point. Jesus, when he says this, blows the minds of the disciples. Changing over a thousand years of history. No one has ever said this. Because in essence, what Jesus is saying is this. I'm God. I'm the fulfillment of prophecy. The whole Old Testament is about me and Passover. Actually, this meal is about me. They did, what, what are you saying? You know, David wrote this in Psalm 51. He says this. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, meaning God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Old Testament, Old Covenant, that's the mindset. In other words, I've sinned against God and God alone. And Jesus comes along and says, by the way, I can forgive sins. I'm God. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Entire theologies and doctrines have been created and debated around these verses. And much of it revolves around the question, did Jesus mean that literally? And in order to do that, you need to understand grammar and language and to some degree have some common sense. Because in language, there's plain literal and figurative literal. I mean, if I say, I'm so hungry, I can eat a horse. And if you bring me a horse, I'm disappointed. I, I wanted a cheeseburger. Um, and dogmatic, legalistic people will say, well, you're being a hypocrite because you're not being true to what you said. And I would say, no, I'm using an idiom you uh, it's figurative. <laughs> I'd say that at your church, not at my church. It's, it's figurative speech, not literal, and you're being religious and no fun at all, by the way. We use metaphors and analogies and similes, and it doesn't mean that we're not communicating a literal truth. I'm hungry. Figurative language can still deliver and articulate a literal truth.
connect, we believe that this passage of Scripture is figurative language in Matthew. Jesus used figurative language all the time. John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. What does that mean? He becomes Allah, the life of Timothy Green and has leaves coming out of his legs. I don't know. What, what does that mean? John 10, I am the door. Does Jesus have hinges? I mean, you get my point. Just because it's said in a figurative, poetic way doesn't mean that it's not communicating a literal truth. And Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Communion is about a meal being eaten with God and his people. And as we eat, as Christians, we eat as friends of the Lord and friends of others that know the Lord. We partake of communion. And when we do that, we say to the world, I'm in a relationship with Jesus and with his people. You know, there's this, this idea, this emerging idea that somehow you can live the full expression of the Christian life and not be connected to the church. Impossible. I don't read that in scripture. I, there are over 30 verses in the New Testament alone that you can't even do unless you're connected to the body of Christ. I mean, this is like a dad with five kids and then they adopt another one. And that kid then goes, well, yeah, he's my dad, but I don't have any siblings. I'm not a part of that family. No, no. God is a father that adopts you and you are now a part of a family and you've got brothers and sisters. I, I don't get this solo, independent, me, Jesus podcasting Christianity. I don't see it in the Bible. Because if you're connected to God, you're connected to his people. This is biblical truth. And when we partake of communion in services or in homes together, we're not only sharing in the body of our Lord that was crucified for us, but we're sharing in the body of Christ, which is represented here on this earth today through the church, everybody. The church modeled this for us. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And all of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, which was usually over meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Four verses later, it says this in verse 46, that they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. You cannot be connected to God and not connected to the church. It's possible. And then Paul goes on to write now in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? There is a sharing. When you drink from the cup, when you eat the bread, there is a sharing of the bread. Body and blood is the whole person. In other words, when you commune with me, you're not just eating bread and drinking a cup. You're sharing a life with me. And just like Israel had grown weary of the ritual, you read in Malachi chapter 1 where they, they don't even want to come near the table, the altar. It smells, it's messy, they don't want to prepare it, they don't want to clean it. And just like that's happening in the Corinthian church, they've lost sight of what it's all about. They're going through the motions. And Paul says it's actually much bigger than that. And look what he says now in verse 21, same chapter. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons, too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons, 
Two, okay, we've just discovered something. There's more than one table. There are two tables. A table is a place where you eat. But remember, in context of history, it was also a place of sacrifice and worship. It's a place where life is shared. And Paul says, the Lord has a table and demons have a table. Let me just remind you, Paul's writing to Christians. He's writing to this Corinth church, which, by the way, was not the best church. Um, <laughs> they're getting drunk. They're suing one another. They're hiring prostitutes. One of the guys is sleeping with his mom or his mother-in-law. It's nasty. It's a mess. Paul basically has the same conversation with the Corinth church that God did back in Malachi with the Israelites. And he's saying, you're, you're claiming to love God and then you're disobeying everything I've told you to do. On Sunday, you come to the Lord's table, fussing and cussing and griping and complaining and you're getting tired of the table, but then you go out from there and you mix it up at other tables. There are two tables and Paul reminds us that the purpose of the table is to share a life. Talking to the church, he acknowledges that there are demons in an earlier passage. He says, he recommends them. Don't participate with those demons, he says. So yes, there's the Lord's table. And yes, there's this other table. Paul goes on to say later that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And, and, and they are forces of demonic foundation. And then here's the kicker. They actually invite you to come to the table and join them. Why would, why would demons want to invite you to sit at the table with them? Listen to me, because they want to share their life with you. It's about sharing a life. Two tables. We bless the cup, we break the bread, we share the body and the blood of Christ. We're sharing a life. And there's another table that you're being invited to. Just like the serpent invited Adam and Eve to join him for a meal. There are demons looking for opportunities to invite you to sit at their table. And they're not only sharing a meal with you, they want to share their life with you. If you're married, you're sharing the life of somebody. And somebody is sharing your life because you are legally married. By contract, you're married. And so you are sharing a life. But you and I both know that you can be married and miserable. In other words, you can have legal sharing without relational sharing. Now, when a, when a couple is physically intimate, they are now sharing life at another level. You're, you're sharing life just because simply you're married. That's legal sharing. But now physical intimacy is sharing life at another level. You are in, here's, here's the word, you are in a covenant, not a contract now. And a lot of Christians are legally saved, but without being intimately connected in a relational way with the sharing of Jesus' life. Jesus is inviting you to share his life at another level. The challenge is there's another table that wants to share their life with you too. And they want to share it in an intimate way. And Paul says there are demons sitting at that table. They want your life. Hey, share life with us. 
Hang out with us. Why don't we do life together? You and us, why don't we share life? Remember, communion is the sharing of life. It's not just eating and drinking. So the Old Testament has this temporary plan, the table, the altar, the place of sacrifice, but Jesus shows up on the scene. And now God has come up with a permanent payment, which is why when Jesus died on the cross, he declared it's finished in the Greek. That means paid in full. Once and for all. No other sacrifice needed. No other substitute needed. It's paid in full. All sin for all mankind, for all of time. Completely, permanently paid for to be realized by anyone who comes and places their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God is now freed up. By the death of Christ, but only if you choose to sit at his table. Because of the perfect work of Christ on the cross, God is now freed up to work his covenant on you, your, and my behalf. Two tables. The table is tied to the covenant. So I just want to look really quickly at three things that we need to do when approaching the table of the Lord so that we can share in his life, put ourselves in a position for God's promises and his covenant to become a reality in our lives. So Paul, in the next chapter, he walks us through the same account of Jesus sitting with his disciples at the Passover meal. And then he follows up with a couple things that should be done before you are in that place. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. Just flip over one chapter. Verse 27 says this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So there are two ways to approach the table of the Lord, worthily or unworthily. Now, God's grace doesn't just forgive our sin. His grace empowers us to put sin to death because God sent his son to die for it. So that, this doesn't mean sinless. Here's what it means. It means that you approach it in a flippant manner. Well, it's just ritual, routine. Bread was stale. The juice was old. We did it again. Passively. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, everyone ought to, this is crucial, if you want to sit at the table and share the life of Christ, you have to be willing to do this. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First, the first thought on how we approach the table of the Lord, we approach it with reflection. With reflection. The root word being reflect. In order to see your reflection, you need to look at something reflective. Can I tell you something? God's word is reflective. It reveals things to us about ourselves as we look at our lives through the lens of the truths found in his word. We see things in our lives as we superimpose his word over our lives. It becomes reflective. In other words, you have to judge yourself. What do you mean by that? I mean, have an honest conversation with yourself. 
And actually, it's with you and God. You invite him into the process. And if you do that, and in humility submit to what God through his Holy Spirit reveals to you, then you can partake in a way that is worthy. Because in all reality, reflection should lead to some level of repentance. Before you take communion. Let me just ask you, do you examine yourself? Do you pause and invite God's Holy Spirit to point out anything in your life that might be blocking you being connected to Him? Do you consider your sin? Do you partake of the bread and the juice and leave here and immediately partake of another table? God always answers the prayer of humility. God never looks at one of His children that approach Him in honesty and humility and ignores them. You have to take time. If you want to approach the table of the Lord in a worthy manner, you have to take time to reflect. Here's the second thing. We approach the table with remembrance. Remembrance. This is a word that Jesus used at that dinner. Going back to verse 23 of that same chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed. I, that just That's crazy to me. On the same night that he was betrayed. Think of that. He's getting ready to die. He takes bread and what Jesus is giving thanks in the middle of knowing that he's getting ready to die. Why would he be giving thanks? Because he knows that being broken is for you. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in, here's the word, remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper. So if you Know anything about the Seder, the 14 steps of the Passover meal? There's 14 steps in that meal. This would be about the third cup of wine that they would share after and during the meal. In the same way, after supper, he takes another cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. Here's that word again, covenant. In my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance. The opposite of remembering is forgetting. The art of remembering includes a conscious, intentional effort to forget some other things. The art of remembering either pushes us towards Christ or it inches us away from him. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, forgetting what is behind, I choose to remember something differently so that I can press toward the goal of a higher calling. So there's a forgetting and a remembering happening simultaneously. Paul's not meaning to forget everything that is behind, but rather forgetting the things that are already in the blood, under the blood of Jesus Christ. So this week, I just, I just want to pull up a few remember verses for you because this theme of remembering runs all throughout Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. Psalm 77 verse 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. They are, look, here's the conscientious desire and intentional pursuance of remembering these things. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Psalm 105, verse 5. Remember the wonders that he has performed, his miracles and the rulings that he has given. Now to the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. Now, why is that something that you need to remember? Because 1 Corinthians 15 says, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. 
So you better remind yourself that he was raised from the dead. Otherwise, you're still guilty for all of your sins, everybody. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, will also. Now, here's why you need to remember it. Because you're raised with him, and you get to be presented to him together forever. If you forget about the resurrection, you're going to live life as if this is all there is. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me give you one more. Remember that at one time, some of us just need to remind ourselves this. At one time, you were separated from Christ. You didn't have it all together. You didn't know when to say the right thing. You didn't know when to raise your hand. and You didn't know when to respond. You were separated, excluded from citizenship in Israel. And foreigners too, here's the word, the covenant. The promise without hope, without God of the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's good news. You need to remember that. You need to remember. It's in the remembering of Christ and his sacrifice, his miracles, his wonders, his resurrection. That we're also reminded that he remembered our lives. Our lives were broken and fractured. They were dismembered. And you can't remember what he did without remembering what your life was like before he did it. Let me say it this way. You can't remember what he did without remembering why he did it. He did it to remember your life, to bring healing and wholeness, to bring light to your darkness and life to your death, to bring reconciliation so that there is no blockage to the Father. You can be connected in relationship with him. We need to reflect as we approach the table. We need to remember there's a remembrance that should increase your level of faith. And then finally, you need to approach the table with rejoicing. With rejoicing. Why it's called the Eucharist or the giving of thanks. Because at the time you take communion, you should never be more thankful. You should be more thankful when you're taking communion than when you hear the sermon or when you hear the song you like. Because none of that defeated Satan, but the cross did. Communion should send you through the roof. Because it's the celebration of what was defeated once and for all. 1 Corinthians now 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. Proclaim his death to whom about what? Who am I proclaiming to? And what am I proclaiming by proclaiming his death? Here's the good news about communion. Communion is not just talking about bread and juice. It's sharing Christ's life. And in sharing his life, we share in his death. And in sharing in his death, we share in his resurrection. Which means we share in the victory over death, hell, and the grave. That's worth rejoicing about. When you take communion... You proclaim to Satan and all of his demons and all of those sitting around that table that Christ is overcome. And because he has overcome, you can overcome. In other words, communion is the place of covenantal authority for all of time. It is the Lord's table that you get to proclaim his death. 
what did his death do? Colossians chapter 2. You were dead. You were dead because there was a blockage and you needed a substitute. And because your sinful nation, nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all of your sin and then he did something else. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. You share in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his victory. So on the cross, not only were sins defeated, but the devil and his demons were defeated. The devil is defeated. I no longer have to sit at that table, although I'm going to still get invitations to it. You know, the reason the devil has more victory than he ought to have is because our lives are not really sharing Christ's life. We're legally married, but we have no intimacy or relational investment. And the place that you get that is at the table. When you sit at the table, it's there. That's why he says, as often as you do it. So he doesn't tell you how often to do it. How often should I do it? Here it is. As often as you need to. However often you need to proclaim to Satan and hell and every demon in hell the victory that is found in Jesus, then do it. That's why we offer it every week. So that every week you can take communion and every week you can remind all of hell that you are victorious because of the death of Jesus. They are disarmed and he shamed them publicly. Amen. And if you sit down, God says, at my table, and you share my life, you take communion, you get to tell the devil where to go. <laughs> this afternoon, uh, there's going to be a game. Uh, before the game, there is a pregame meal. The game is a war, it is a battle. The game is conflict. The game is competition. But before the game, there's a pregame meal. And the pregame meal is to give you the nutrition that you need to go into the battle that you're getting ready to face. <laughs> God has a pregame meal. Some of you have got hell waiting on you this week. There's a table waiting and inviting you. Some of you have hell breaking loose in your family. Some of you, your family members are sitting at the table with the demons. God, I need a pregame meal. I need you to give me nurturing so that I have the energy necessary to tell those devils where to go. And it's at the table of the Lord that you share in his life and you partake of a meal. In the partaking of that meal, you share in the body and the blood of Jesus. You share in his life, his death, his resurrection. And when you share in his life and death and resurrection, guess what you share in? You share in his victory. Because his death was victory. And that's what you proclaim. And when you proclaim that, you get to rejoice. Isaiah 53. He was wounded. For our transgressions, bruised for my iniquity, chastisement of our peace, 
he took upon himself. And by, this is why you can approach the table rejoicing, because it's by his stripes we're healed. It's victory at the table. We should be rejoicing every time we come to the table of the Lord. Reflection leading to repentance. Remembrance leading to humble gratitude. Rejoicing that we live in victory. This is how we approach the table in a worthy manner. Aren't you excited to approach the table today? Thanks again for listening. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at Wilson Central High School at either 9 or 11 o'clock a.m. I'll look forward to seeing you there.